You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, today's show is brought to you by Kindle. Great spellers come from great readers, and that's why Kindle is the proud presenting sponsor of next week's 2017 Scripps National Spelling Bee. That's right. The event of the year is next week. You know what a Kindle is, but uh, you might not know that they've got these features like uh, WordWise, which supports comprehension and vocab development, and the Kindle Free Time Awards Achievement Badges allow readers to reach milestones. To learn more about the ways that Kindle inspires a child's love of reading, visit Amazon.com slash Kindle for Kids and make sure to tune in next week. Scripps National Spelling Bee, presented by Kindle, Thursday, June 1st, 8 p.m. ESPN. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. It is nice to see you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while, and I'm happy to be here with you. It's nice for you to say that. It's like a book club of three. <laughs> Evan, who did you talk to for uh, this week's Long Form Podcast? Uh, this week, I talked to Jeffrey Gettleman. Uh, Jeffrey Gettleman, if you are a uh, dedicated reader of the New York Times, as I am myself, uh, you will have seen his byline many, many times. He's been the East Africa Bureau Chief at the Times for uh, years, uh, maybe a decade, maybe a little bit more than a decade. He won a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. Uh, he has a book out right now called Love Africa. That is a memoir. It's uh, it's actually a book really about like the dream of becoming a certain type of journalist and it's also a love story and it's a kind of a, a rare type of book where you really see inside someone's ambitions and how they achieve them and mistakes they made along the way and it's very very frank uh and it's a great read so it reminds me of this show yeah i was gonna say it seems like pretty good fodder for this podcast like, we do. He, it sounds like he ripped us off i just uh we read the book aloud oh. that's how we, that was actually the interview this is our first audiobook episode if your ambitions take you afield and you want to keep touch with the people in your life who are everywhere, uh, there's no better way to do it than with an email newsletter. MailChimp makes it so simple from when you have two subscribers to 2,000. They've got you covered. Thank you, MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Jeffrey Gettleman. Jeffrey Gettleman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Um, you're in town from quite far away. Yes. At the moment. So it was, I feel fortunate to have caught you while you're here. Thank you. 
Are you still bureau chief currently? Yes. East Africa bureau chief right. for the Times, which I think for outsiders is kind of like, it's just a crazy idea that like you cover all of East Africa. Like how big an area is that? How many it's countries like, is that? It's 13 countries, 400 million people. It's about half the size uh, geographically of the U.S. Um, and, the, you know, more people than the U.S. Yeah. So that's like someone being whatever based in D.C. and saying like, I cover the eastern U.S. or something, but right. with a lot more people. Right. Yeah. It's an insane concept. And it's kind of an old-fashioned concept mm -hmm. <clears throat> because m fewer and fewer newspapers have these staff positions. We have people in the field like myself that are going off into some of the hardest, most remote parts of the world with a notebook and a pen and a satellite phone and a satellite transmitter and a wad of cash. And that's the only way to get these stories. You can't sit at your desk in New York or even Nairobi and figure out what's happening in Eastern Congo or in Mogadishu, Somalia, or in South Sudan. You have to get out to the field. And that's the most wonderful aspect of the job. I, I came into it that I just wanted to travel around Africa as a young guy. And I was looking for a way to do that. And on good days, I kind of you know, pinch myself and say, somebody is helping me have these adventures for a purpose, which is to tell these stories and open a window on a part of the world that people don't understand. Yeah. So let's talk about where all this comes from, because you mentioned this dream as a young man of going and working there. How did that start? Where did you first trigger that dream? So... I took a dramatic left turn in my life when I was 18 years old. You grew up in? I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, uh -huh. in an upper middle class suburb, went to Cornell University. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was a social worker. I have a sister. We had a dog. Very typical suburban existence. I played lacrosse and soccer. I was in a fraternity. Whoa. But I had this itch to travel, and I'm not exactly sure where that came from. And for some reason, I thought Africa, just because it, it represented to me the most adventure of any place in the world. And I went on this trip with these students across East Africa in 1990 to bring medical supplies to refugees. And it sounds like, you know, we were trying to save the world, but it actually was just like a great road trip. And, you know, we had time to to hang out in these villages and drink beer with the villagers and just drive around and look at stuff. And as a suburban kid from Chicago, I, I just had was blown away by how different it felt and how warm people were. Uh-huh. Because I was surrounded by the poorest people I had ever met in my entire life who had nothing. And this was 1990 at a period when people in rural Africa literally wore rags and had no electricity in their villages, no phones. You're totally cut off. And there was this spirit among all, all just about everybody we met, very open, very welcoming, very open-hearted. And we would play soccer with kids and just sit and talk to old men and just explore with this warmth surrounding us. And I came back and it, it just totally blew my mind because I thought if these people have nothing and they can seem so happy and joyful and welcoming, like what are we all complaining about? 
And it was hard. It was hard then to fit back in, to slot back into playing lacrosse and being in a fraternity and going to parties on Friday nights with music blasting and holding a little plastic cup of beer and trying to talk to girls. And, you know, that was like my life at that age. And I had even stronger urges once I went that first summer to do something with this this passion. But it took a long time to get back. Yeah. Today, if you had started with that dream, I want to go work in a foreign bureau and Africa, a foreign bureau anywhere. There's so many fewer foreign bureaus. I mean, you ended up at the time. So I guess that dream is still accomplishable, uh, but, but, people but ask, only at a few places. People ask me that all the time. Yeah. Like, tell me how you started. How'd you get that job? And I walk them through. I, I, it was very hierarchical back then. It was like an old school profession. Yeah. And I had a good education. You know, I I was a decent writer, but nobody wanted to hire me. I sent out hundreds of applications to newspapers all across America, and, and nobody wanted to hire me. The amount of rejection that I absorbed was, was crushing. It demoralized me. Yeah. And it was only I, I got a, a, an internship at a small newspaper in Wisconsin, and that led to an internship at this newspaper in Florida, which led to a job. But it was I was really clawing my way through this business. And, and when, that was good. That teaches you humility. It, it gives you responsibility. I tell young people that all the time. I was like, don't don't go for the big name. Go for for any job, whatever field you're in. Try to get a job where you have responsibility. Because I know people that got hired at the New York Times early on as young people, which I desperately wanted and it didn't happen. And it's harder to kind of get a lot of attention because you're just this tiny little fish in a big sea. Right. It's weirdly, it can be harder to sort of wiggle your way up yeah, exactly. than it is to like bounce and, and also to get the experience right. uh, where you're actually out doing the reporting. So when you got to say Pete Times and you finally, you know, they gave you a job and you're out reporting and the reporting, a lot of it was dark. It's crime based and there's a lot of crazy things happening in that part of Florida. Um, did you feel like you took naturally to reporting? No, you got to kind of fake it. Yeah. And act as if you know what you're doing. But you really don't. And I remember the first job I had, there was some incident on a highway where some ducks escaped from some cage or something. were running across the highway, and it blocked up traffic on an interstate highway for miles. And the editor uh, handed me some, some press release, and he's like, hey, Jeff, give me two graphs on this. And I was like, a pie graph? <laughs> Uh, a line graph. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Well, these days it could be like a database, <laughs> hey, yeah, data journalism. Yeah. Well, can we do was... a visualization on this? <laughs> this was not those days. Yeah. So I was, I was clueless, but I did enjoy the interaction of being a journalist. That first job, I learned how to just listen and 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 try to just get the feed from somebody's heart how they were feeling, because that's what makes a good story. It's not just this happened and this happened and this happened. It's what you felt when you were experiencing these horrible things or big events in your life. Well, the flip side of that is another thread that sort of runs through that felt like it started at the St. B. Times was the experience of being edited. And you describe over and over again feeling like a what you call a more is more writer and being, a, you know, wanting to have these sort of like flourishes and wanting to have more description and then just being cut back and cut back by these newspaper editors and kind of like adapting to that over time. And was there a particular early time when you felt like uh, I, I've written my whatever Hemingway, Hunter Thompson story and they've just killed it? All the time. And, and part of it was I was trying so hard. 
you know, maybe trying too hard. I, I needed to make this work. I put enormous pressure on myself to succeed in these early jobs so that would lead me to the next step. And, you know, sometimes that's unnecessary. Sometimes, like, especially with news reporting, you just want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Don't dress it up. Don't, you know, embarrass yourself with all these, you know, flowery descriptions that, that get in the way of, like, conveying what happened, what the information is. And I didn't know that line. I didn't... Now I can see, okay, this is a straight news story, and I should just play it straight. And this is a story that, you know, would, would benefit from some deeper and more evocative writing. Back then, I just kind of overwrote everything. Hey, it's Max. I want to tell you about a new podcast I think you should be trying. It's called Fan Club. And Fan Club is brand new. It's a limited-run series uh, brought to you by Viacom. You know Viacom, MTV, Comedy Central, BET, Nickelodeon, Paramount. It's hosted by Ross Martin, and Fan Club is about why we love what we love. Every episode, Ross goes out and focuses on a different aspect of what it means to be a fan in 2017. He talks to some of the smartest people in entertainment, music, fashion, food, art, media, and uh, the way we consume culture is changing. It is changing every minute. And what the show is about is really like, how are we going to consume this stuff in the future? How are you going to interact with the stuff that you love? So go check it out. This week is the Charlemagne the God episode. It's uh, all about how Charlemagne's like relentless honesty created a bond with his fans around the world. You can listen now by subscribing to Fan Club on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also sponsoring the show this week, another podcast. It's uh, brought to you by to you that's the number two and the letter u and their new podcast the front row which is a show about what it takes to solve the problems of the future each episode features people who are making the future happen across a range of fields healthcare data science manufacturing these professionals are at the forefront of their fields and they can give you a front row seat to what the future is going to look like and what kinds of skills it will demand to you is an ed tech company that partners with great colleges and universities to build digital education programs like MBA at UNC, design at USC, and communications at Syracuse. To Use platform provides a comprehensive fusion of technology, services, and data architecture to transform high-quality and rigorous campus-based universities into the best digital versions of themselves. And uh, qualified students, working professionals around the world can experience a first-rate university education and successful outcomes. To learn more and subscribe, visit 2u.com slash longform. Again, that's the number two and the letter u.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Evan and Jeffrey Gittleman. So you start to go abroad, but it's initially around the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it, in the book, it, it sort of feels like you're always viewing everything as just stepping stone to getting to Africa. And like, was that just looking back, you feel that way? Or in the moment, like, were you thinking like, I'm going to take this uh, tour of duty in Iraq because that is how I'm going to get to Africa? Were you literally thinking that at the time? I kind of was. I never lost sight of this goal to be a correspondent in Africa. That's what I really wanted. But I had to put it on hold for a while. And so when September 11th happened... It was this enormous opportunity for young journalists. I was like perfectly positioned. I was 30 years old and I had a few years of experience under my belt, but I needed a break. And I got sent to Yemen to try to dig up information about Osama bin Laden because his family was from Yemen. Yeah. 
and I, I was like thrilled to get this assignment. And I went to these, these mountainous villages in rural Yemen, which you could not set foot in today because it's completely dominated by Al-Qaeda. And I was trying to talk to people about like, well, what was Osama's family like? Um, what do you think contributed to him becoming this terrorist figure? And nobody wanted to talk to me. I totally struck out. I came back with a couple crappy stories and felt horrible that I had blown it. And then a few months passed and I got lucky that the Afghanistan war broke out and I got sent to Afghanistan and I had a really amazing experience. And people were incredibly open, incredibly warm, and I traveled all around Afghanistan doing feature stories connected to the war, but also just about life in Afghanistan trying to kind of spring back. And it was, a, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Did that reporting experience felt like it translated from your domestic reporting? Like, it's basically all the same. You, you know, you go, you talk to people, or did you find it to be you needed to recalibrate how you approached reporting? It's mostly all the same. It's mostly all the same. You got to listen. You got to ask good questions. You got to be really persistent. So many people are going to try to shake you loose and have no time to talk to a journalist. Um, whether or even understand why, like, you have a little bit of the incentive, it feels like, if you're in Florida or somewhere, they're like, oh, the St. Pete Times or the New York Times or the LA Times, like, it means something to them that, oh, okay, I understand, like, my friends and neighbors might even read this somehow. But in a distant part of the world, what do they care? Who, who no, are you? And often you have to explain, like, what a journalist is. Mm-hmm. I talk to people who have never spoken to a journalist in their life. They're not spinning you. It's not like being in Washington where it's part of the game. These people, you have to explain like what a newspaper is. They've never seen a newspaper in rural Congo or in Afghanistan. But the difference between like the, the first tastes of foreign correspondence that I had and the local reporting was that you have to be on your toes because you could get killed. There's, there's, it's really dangerous in some of these places. There's no 911. There's no clarity about is that part of the country safe or is that road safe or is that guy somebody you can trust. There's no, there's no fixed points in any of this. And you're on your own. And so you have to like think a lot on your feet and just kind of eye, eyeball the situation and, and make these you know, life and death decisions based on your gut and your read of people. Like, that's really important is, is reading people and thinking, is this guy somebody I can trust? Is the information he's telling me um, reliable? Is he giving me a kind of shifty vibe? Or is he looking me in the eye and making me believe that he's speaking from the heart? Yeah. Because you just, you're putting your life in other people's hands. Yeah. Was there any moment where you were looking at this from a broader perspective and saying, are these risks worth it to me? Because there's a certain amount, even as you develop that second sense that you can't control. Like it seemed like in Fallujah, like things just went wrong. Totally. I constantly was saying, is this worth it? Mm -hmm. Like, is this what I should be doing with my life? The Fallujah thing was terrifying. We set off that day to cover uh, an attack on American forces about an hour outside of Baghdad. And this was a time when you could move around Iraq in a car with other journalists. And we were driving down this quiet road in a rural area with all these palm trees and little kind of brick mud huts. And all of a sudden, a van zoomed across the road in front of us. 
and the doors popped open and dozens of men with scarves over their faces and assault rifles and RPGs just came out of nowhere and and surrounded us in a few seconds. And all of a sudden, you have no control whatsoever. You are going to do what you are told to do mm-hmm. because there's no there's no fight, there's no flight. You're you're that's done. Your options have just been eliminated. And we had to I had to step out of this car with these guys shouting at me, pointing machine guns in my face. And this one guy in front of me took the safety off his gun and held it up to me. And I really thought at that moment, that was it. I really felt like it was like this kind of feeling that washed through me of of just being totally numb, that this is it. I wasn't even scared because you're scared. You're stressed when you have choices. Mm -hmm. And you think you could get out of it. Somehow. Or even if you're rushing through traffic or, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like everyday choices. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's like that st- choice is, is what creates stress. And when you have no choice and you're just uh, left up to the, the actions of others, there was almost like this weird calm that came over me. And I, I like the fear disappeared. And these guys didn't obviously shoot me. And then they spent the next hour shouting questions at me and shaking their guns in my face and they were really fixated on what was my nationality. Mm-hmm. Are you American? Are you a spy? And I made up this lie that I was Greek. And I'm not, I have no Greek heritage. You could pass for Greek. <laughs> I mean, you look and, Greek enough. Well, I guess so. Apparently <laughs> <guess laughs> so. These guys would agree with you. And it was, it was only that that saved my, saved my skin that day. Um, and then afterward, I was like, what am I, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is crazy. I don't want to die on some battlefield. That was never, I'm not, and it sounds, it might sound totally disingenuous. I'm not an adventure seeking adrenaline junkie. Like, I like to explore new worlds, but I'm not one of these, you know, chain smoking, hard drinking, partying types that just wants thrills all the time. And unfortunately, that's an aspect of the job. Yeah. And as I get older and I've been through more and more, the questions get louder, which is like, why do you keep doing this? Because you feel like you only have so many points and eventually your points are going to run out. And so as I, as I have, and I now have two kids, as I advance, I just start thinking, okay, like I've done so much, I shouldn't push it. But you also, it must be that you feel like to do the job the way you want to do it, you have to push far enough that those risks appear because you could you could do it in such a way that you don't put yourself in in that risk. I would think you can, and it's 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 like a mile by mile decision. So, for instance, I'm covering a rebellion in Eastern Congo, and I get to this town that has rebels ringed around it. Uh, mortars firing in the night, sounds of machine gun fire, everybody fleeing the town. I'm coming in. I literally cross the border. I'm the only one coming in. Everybody else is coming out. I check in at a hotel, and the manager says, pay me cash now because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that hotel itself is reasonably safe. 
but I want more. I want to see what's happening out there. I want to see where these rebels are coming from. And so I go out of the town in a car with some other people to the first kind of conflict zone. Mm -hmm. And there you're even closer to the gunfire and you hear it even louder and you see even more people fleeing. And you stop there and you think, okay, should we push forward and go even closer so we can write or take pictures of the actual fighting? So you're constantly making these decisions about how much risk to take. Mm -hmm. And you get... You try not to get numb to it because if you've been there a lot, you can kind of be sort of blasé about it and be like, yeah, man, nothing happened last time. Yeah. But it's so easy to lose your life. I mean, I have friends that have been killed, people that were killed in Libya or Syria, people I know. So you just, you just, it's like you want that story. You want that for me, I want the details. I want to smell it. I want to feel it. I want to see it. I want to describe it. And you feel like you can't do that from sitting back at the hotel, even if you're in the town. So you push out into the field. Mm -hmm. But that can get addictive and really dangerous. And you got to kind of also have that other voice in your head telling you when to stop. And there's another aspect of that, which is the fixer. Yeah. How is it that you figure out how to find these people and who's good and who you can trust. Like, how does that economy work? It's like job references. Uh -huh. That you, you, you ask people you trust for people they trust for people they trust. And as long as that chain of trust is pretty solid, you're okay. But there's a, there's a leap of faith. Um, but you put these people in danger too. It's like this impossible situation. So there was a guy, Khalid Hussein, who I worked with in Iraq, big, beefy, Palestinian kid. Uh, he was like 300 pounds, 19 years old, excellent English. He had taught himself English from watching DVDs of ER mm. <laughs> and, spoke, and spoke colloquial English perfectly. And this guy, time and time again, would go out with us into the field in Baghdad and around Iraq, interviewing people, showing up with the New York Times team, you know, really good at like drawing out feelings because this is another issue. It's hard to connect with somebody when you don't speak the language. Yeah, of course. Because you're not even looking at them. You're looking at your translator. Translator's <laughs> looking at them. They're looking back at the translator. It's hard to get a rapport. It's really hard. Yeah. And this guy, Khaled, was awesome at like getting people to open up and understanding what I was interested in and, and translating that in all, all ways of that, you know, what that means. He was shot in the head a couple years after I left. His work for the New York Times infuriated the insurgents, and they hunted him down and killed him purely because he was working for us. Mm -hmm. And everybody that worked for us knew the risks. They were doing their own risk-reward calculations about the money and about their sense of mission and maybe their own kind of sense of adventure. But we often leave a trail behind us. And that's like one of the hardest parts of the work because we don't, we leave these places. I go to Iraq, I work really hard, I'm there for a couple months, I risk my neck many times. And then I fly back to Evanston, Illinois, or, you know, LA or wherever. These guys are stuck in that and they never fly out. Mm -hmm. And this happens all the time in Africa and Somalia and Congo and. 
So it's you got to move carefully because you want to take so much material, but you can't be insensitive to, to, to the fact that there are other people who are going to be left behind. It happens all the time. This happens all the time. I'm in Somalia, and we're asking some warlord questions, and the translator will be like, you know what? Um, nothing's going to happen to you, but if we keep pushing, there could be problems for me when you leave. Mm-hmm. And so you got to factor that in. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about writing about Africa. A common criticism along that front, if you were to like page through all of your stories on the New York Times archive, it's like, it's a really like a catalog of human misery in some ways, like war, famine, just it's, it's the worst of what happens on earth. And people will say, well, that's not Africa. Like talk a little bit about why and how you end up at those stories. No, no, that's a really interesting connection because um, what you choose is going to affect that, that, that representation. And that's what we're constantly doing is choosing what to write about. It's hard. Um, it kind of gets at the core of what's our mission as a journalist. Are we there to write a, a representative picture of a place? Or are we there to drive change? Or are we there to speak out about injustice or try to bring help to people who need it? News is not the millions of mothers looking after their children responsibly. News is the one mother who drowns her child. That's the woman you want to read about. And we have this kind of morbid fascination with disaster as human beings. So any news, not just in Africa, but anywhere, overrepresents conflict. For sure. You pick up the New York Times or look at any sort of TV news. There's no, there's no story about people quietly, li- you know, living their lives in, in harmony. You're not going to read that story. You're going to read a story about somebody plowing into Times Square. You're going to read a story about somebody lying in, in their official capacity or stealing money or crime or, or war. Mm-hmm. So Africa becomes like the extreme of that because there, there's, there is a lot of conflict. These states in sub-Saharan Africa are, are very weak. There's not good law enforcement. There's not good security of the borders. There's a lot of very poor people. There's not controls on weapons. And so you have more rebellions and people fighting the, the, the authorities in their states more in Africa than anywhere else in the world. I mean, right now in, in, in Congo, there's probably 100 different rebel groups. In Syria, maybe there's 10, you know, and that's just Congo. And then you look at Sudan, South Sudan, all these other countries. I would try to choose stories where I felt like I could make a difference, however kind of problematic and cliche that sounds. But I felt a responsibility if I knew of something really bad happening and nobody was covering it, that I should be writing about that. Because maybe if, you know, I work for a big newspaper. I have a big megaphone. And and if I do a big piece about women being raped in Congo and it's happening on a very large scale, many different places, thousands of women affected by the same problem. If I do that well and I make people empathize with that story, then maybe there will be some help. And and I did that. Like one of the better stories I did when I first got the job was writing about this rape epidemic in Congo where hundreds of thousands of women were being raped by government forces, rebel soldiers, bandits. It was like there was a war on women. And after that story ran, 
some women in New York that started an NGO to raise money to help these women. And other people took notice at the UN, in the US government. Um, that's really gratifying. I did the same thing with, with wildlife a few years ago. I did a big piece about elephant poaching. Mm-hmm. And this was an issue I'd been tracking, and I'm not like the first guy to write about you know, the ivory trade or elephant poaching. But I did a big piece across the continent at a, at a time when it was just beginning to kind of peak, mm-hmm. and there hadn't been too much journalism on it. And after that piece ran, you know, the State Department started funding anti-poaching campaigns. Hillary Clinton had some big events against elephant poaching. It just, it, the, the word got out. And the, and the problem was horrible. I mean, you have one of the most intelligent animals on earth, greatly endangered, living at peace in these, in these jungles and savannas across Africa. And these waves of poachers are targeting them, shooting them, chopping off their faces and dragging out the tusks to then send to the ports in Africa to then ship to China so the ivory can be turned into toothpicks, eyeglass frames, shot glasses. Basically bullshit. Yeah. And you're pushing an animal to the brink of extinction for trinkets. And that's like a that's an important story. So by doing that, am I making Africa look crazy and chaotic and violent and sad? Maybe. But it's also that's important. We gotta we have to know. Th- those elephants are, are are kind of our elephants. Mm-hmm. That's the only part of the world that they live like that, in great numbers and wild herds and f- remote places. Wildlife is is a, is an asset for all of us, and so the world has a responsibility to to care about this. But so if you take that approach and you say, okay, part of why I want to focus on this story or that story is that I feel like the megaphone potentially it could drive change. That seems like it could also be a recipe for ending up very cynical because surely you've done stories about absolutely awful human tragedy that have not driven change. And then do you then what do you say? It it bums me out because I I risk my neck. I put a lot of time and energy into it, do a big story, um, and then the reaction is kind of non existent or quiet. Um Again, I think it's – I sometimes see it as a failure of, of, of mine that like maybe I didn't write it well enough or I didn't, I didn't have people empathize strongly enough with it. Um, we're at a really inward moment right now. So when I started this job in 2006, the war in Darfur was raging. Yeah. Darfur, Sudan. And it was this, this civil war situation with one ethnic group trying to wipe out another ethnic group, and the government was sponsoring um, militias to attack people that they saw as supporters of rebels. And they were just laying waste across you know, thousands of miles, burning down villages, massacring people, raping women, stealing all their stuff. And the government was just kind of shrugging or secretly helping the, the, the marauders. That was a big world story. Yeah, that story really broke through and had celebrities attached to it. And it's probably the one exactly. conflict like that that like a lot of Americans may be familiar with because Exa- they saw George you know, Clooney. Save Darfur. Right. Something. And, and I don't have a problem with, with the celebrities getting involved. Some other journalists I know or other people are like, oh, my God, what does George Clooney really know about Sudan or Don Cheadle or whoever else was there that day? I see it as we all have our roles. 
Like my role as a journalist, I go into these situations. I'm not distributing aid. I'm not trying to save lives directly. That's not my job. I, of course, if somebody's bleeding to death in front of me, I'm going to try to help them. Or if, if I have a granola bar in my pocket and I just interview somebody and they need food, I'll take that out of my pocket and give it to them. But my job is not to, to figure out how to bring lots of food to lots of people. I go and interview them and I leave. That's my role. The aid workers are there to distribute aid. The celebrities are there to shine a spotlight because there's lots of people that care what George Clooney's doing on a daily basis. And he decided to use a little of that bandwidth to bring some attention to Darfur. But right now we're at a very inward looking moment. I can feel it. There's just less interest in Africa and these other conflicts that are happening. People are really worried about what's happening at home and the U.S. politically. Um, and it's harder. It's harder to break through. Because it just Africa seems even more irrelevant today than it than it had been, and Africa always struggles with that. It's like Africa will always be this kind of mysterious, um, foreign for dis- Americans for Americans disconnected place, and that's what and that brings like challenges. How do you write about it? How do you break through those stereotypes? Heart of Darkness was one of the most seminal books written about Africa, written in 1899. And that, in a way, reinforced the stereotypes of Africa as as wild and brutal. But it also was very critical of of the foreign intervention in Africa. That's really what that book is about. So even today, more than 100 years later, you're still kind of stuck in that, which is, okay, I don't want to reinforce the stereotypes of Africa, which, which is laden with more stereotypes than just about anywhere in the world. And it's colored by race. And race is like just a hot-button issue in human existence. We're white, they're black, and that adds all this other stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to be so scared of writing bad stories that that I'm going to, you know, go do a story about a pop singer when I know um, women are being raped in Congo. I I made that decision many times. I was like, no, you know, I'd like to do, quote, good news stories too. But if I have limited time, I'm going to try to do a story that will help people. Yeah. Well, part of it is, is goes back to you being one person who's covering up countries in a vast expanse. If you had, if the New York Times had someone in every country, that would be an easier proposition to say, like, you're just in Kenya. So you cover the, the amazing things about Kenya and the negative things about Kenya. But then the other thing I, I thought the difference between in the book where you're able to contextualize, you're able to say, oh, there are all these conflicts but also like they derive from colonialism. They derive from these original sources. Whereas in a newspaper story, what is the level of contextualization that you're able to do for each particular story that you're doing, you know? And often not a lot. And again, like the newspaper is kind of a, a quick snapshot mm-hmm. of, of, of the world viewed from, through the lens of an appetite for, for drama. Yeah, any newspaper, any news. It's like that's what we think people want. Maybe that is what they want. Um, maybe that's not. But for better or for worse, that's the news industry anywhere is like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the book does a decent job of explaining some of these dilemmas and these predicaments and the personal – turmoil that I feel at times because I came to Africa as an 18-year-old kid thrilled and, and, and joyous about my experience 
that's what made me want to live and work in Africa. It, it wasn't to cover war and famine. And so I'm constantly torn and thinking, okay, um, why, like, why, am I, why have I departed so far from, from what brought me here in the first place? Um, and, I, and, I, and I struggle with that. But I also try to find silver linings even in really nasty stories. So, for instance, I write in the book about this Westgate Mall attack mm-hmm. where on a Saturday afternoon I was at a party with my family and we get a message that there's a shootout at a mall and I'm like, okay, what's, you know, bank robbery, what's going on? And then it develops over the next few hours into this massacre of shoppers that were just going about their business on a Saturday, sunny Saturday afternoon. And these Islamic terrorists burst into the mall and just started shooting everybody in sight. And it was demoralizing and terrifying and discouraging because this is like a mall that I would go to with my kids. I could have easily been there that day. Yeah, you described being at a different mall right. that same day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what we do in Nairobi, we go to malls. <laughs> but but even in that situation, there was like this moment of beauty where the police like were nowhere to be found as these terrorists are moving through the the mall just killing people. The military response is is non-existent for 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 several hours. And so these people are trapped in this mall with these guys with assault rifles just shooting and killing whoever crosses their path. And during that, all these off-duty police officers, and Kenya's police have the worst reputation in the world for being thugs, for being corrupt, for shaking you down for bribes. I've paid more bribes in Kenya, you know, than I will ever pay again in my life to police officers for bullshit traffic offenses or any, you know, anything they'll stop you for. And instead of just getting into like a long drawn out, you know, ordeal, you just give them a 10 bucks and you're, everybody's happy. I do that, that, that we all do that. These guys, those same guys came flying into the mall with little pistols and no coordination, no orders. Nobody was telling them to do it. They heard the gunshots, and they came from the surrounding area, and they fought toe-to-toe against these terrorists with assault rifles, and several of these police officers were killed. And in the meantime, they rescued hundreds of people, and nobody patted them on the back. Nobody gave them a bonus. They never got official recognition. Mm. They did the right thing at that moment, and that was, like, amazing. They didn't sort of stand on the outside of the mall calling for backup or, you know, we need the SWAT team. They went in there with no flak jackets, nothing, into like a battle zone. So I tried in the book and I try as like a human being to give the whole picture. That helps me not be totally depressed by something like that and just want to like crawl into bed and cry. I think, okay, there are some good people that were trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You talked about, I mean, you've won a Pulitzer Prize and- I got to the part about the Pulitzer Prize and you describe entering yourself in the Pulitzer. So the, the, you describe this like the Times enters people. They did not enter you and you entered yourself and you won. And even there was like, well, just first just describe what happened. I feel like I'm it's, destined. I'm it's destined, so interesting. I'm destined for controversy. <laughs> so the way it works with the Pulitzer Prizes is anybody's allowed to enter their own work. It says that explicitly in the rules. There are not that many big awards that work like that. You can't you can't nominate yourself for a MacArthur Grant. Right. You can't nominate yourself for an Oscar. Um, you know, it's unusual that it says that in the in the rules in black and white. You know, you can nominate yourself for the work, 
people do that all the time. At the New York Times, there's a hierarchy, and the paper decides they only get three slots for each category. They're only allowed to nominate three entries for each category. Foreign reporting was the category that I wanted to win, and they had those three slots already determined. And my editors had said, you know, your work's been really good. We're going to nominate you for some other stuff, but we're not nominating you for a Pulitzer. And I was like, that kind of sucks. Um, but then I thought, you know what? Let me nominate myself. And my editors knew. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh-huh. it, there was some controversy afterward. Yeah, they kind of made, made it out afterwards like you had got, done an end run around. Exactly. No, no, they knew. They supported it. Um, they just want to win Pulitzer Prizes at the New York Times. They don't care <laughs> who enters what. So nobody was upset in my chain of command that I won. Were other reporters, do you think the other reporters were like, what? No, I actually got a lot of messages. So, okay, so, so I, I, I nominated myself. Um, I had been covering Africa really heavily and closely and with like a lot of passion and commitment for years. This, that year was a really heavy year in Somalia. You had an outbreak of piracy. You had a famine where 250,000 people died. You had the Shabaab Islamic group blowing people up. And then at the same time, there was conflict in Sudan. So I had like a very busy year that year. And I felt like this was a good year. So the Pulitzer board met... And it ended up that I was up against the you know entries from the New York Times. So the the finalists that year. So we find out like a few days before the official announcement is made who are the three finalists. And I was a finalist. The New York Times was a finalist for our coverage of a nuclear disaster in Japan. And Reuters was a finalist for uh, coverage of Libya. And I kind of had a good feeling that there was a chance I would win because. Africa gets overlooked, and there was, like, a lot of coverage that year of the Arab Spring. There was a lot of coverage of the Japanese nuclear disaster. There wasn't that much coverage of Africa. And I was up against these teams of, like, several different people, and it was yeah. just me. Yeah. And I think that, I think that created some sympathy for, for me. So when I won, a lot of people were shocked. They're like, you went all the way through the whole thing, and you actually won because people nominate themselves all the time. And they, sure. And, and they, they don't. They must get some nutso people who nominate themselves also. But that they do that by design. Like, they make that as part of the rules. Yeah. Um, and so nobody so, – so after I won, I got a lot of really nice messages from colleagues, and several people wrote to me and said, I wish I had done that because I will always wonder when the paper decided not to nominate me if I could have won. And I'm just like this guy, if we haven't figured it out yet, like I don't want to have regrets. Like I live a lot of my life like trying to eliminate regrets. And I didn't want to like be thinking years, you know, down the line, wow, I, you know, what would have happened if I had, you know, stuck out my neck at that moment? Or what would have happened if I had won? Or I regret not, not sticking up for myself. And as my wife says, you know, she's like, there's nothing wrong with trying to steer your own destiny. Yeah. Well, that was the thing about, I mean, I t- I just, I really get it because like Jack Schaefer is famous for saying, uh, you know, all awards are shit or something like that. Actually, Jack Schaefer wrote a really nice appraisal of your work uh, years ago in Slate. Uh, but it's also true that like, that it matters to your career. Like other people care about it. So whether or not you personally, it's an ego thing and like, it's great to win, but like 
other people care if you have that and it's attached to your name it's on your book like it'll always be attached to your name it's meaningful so like going for, like makes sense to me it's i agree i mean it's kind of sad to derive your own self-esteem from what like 10 people decide on a certain day <laughs> right you know and so you try not to do that but we live in a reality. People are rushed. They're going to look for quick kind of indicators of of success or quality. And if they see Pulitzer Prize, they think, okay, you know, that guy's not a total idiot. Right. And so, yeah. So, yeah. I, it was, it, But I didn't set out into journalism saying I got to win a Pulitzer Prize. Like I, I set off into journalism thinking I got to work in Africa. But once I was in it and I saw the work of others, you know, it's like I did an interview with Jimmy Carter years ago. And Jimmy Carter said that the reason why he decided to run for president in 1976, he was the governor of Georgia. It was like 1974. And the Democratic candidates passed through Georgia to get his endorsement. And it was Ted Kennedy with some other people. And after meeting all these guys, he said to himself, if they're running for president, then I should run for president. You know, if it's if if they can do it, I can do it. And that's kind of how I looked at it. It's like I didn't see myself as some, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. But when I saw the other entries, I thought, you know what? The work I did was just as good as that. Yeah. What do you see for yourself in terms of can you do that job indefinitely? No. And we are moving to India. Oh. In a couple months. Oh, wow. So the the wise men at the New York Times felt like it was time for me to do something else. The average stint in this job is three to five years. I've been there 11. I was kind of running out of maneuvering room. And so they said to me, you know, we think it's time for you to try something else. And part of me does want to, you know, I love living in Kenya. Like if it was just up to me and I could just stay in Kenya and live there, I would do that. But it's not totally up to me. And I also am interested in writing about different topics because it's hard as a journalist to cover the same thing day after day after day for a long time. I find that difficult yeah. because you just don't have the fresh eyes. You kind of bring all your baggage back to South Sudan when you show up again for another story that's similar to what you had written years ago. So I feel like... It's, it's harder and harder to, to get excited about uh, the same type of stories that I've covered. Um, that doesn't mean I couldn't do a better job and cover them differently or more deeply. The dangers also have, have, have taken a toll on me, and I look forward to working in a place where I'm not worried about you know, losing my life when I leave home to cover a story. Mm -hmm. I don't feel bad about the sort of intellectual decision of covering something else, writing about something else or studying something else. But I feel bad about leaving. Like, I love that part of the world. So is it like a dream fulfilled or is it like a dream partially fulfilled and deferred? I think it's more of that because we can come back. We can try something different. And if it doesn't work out, then we could always come back. If it does work out, then maybe it becomes a dream fulfilled. But this part of the world will always be part of my life. Like, I'm not going to let that die. It's just a question of how to factor that in professionally. And I'm, I'm, I'm working for a big company. I'm, I'm not totally in charge of my own destiny. Yeah. I could be. I could quit the New York Times tomorrow and just live in Kenya and try to be a writer or do my own thing. That's, that's, I've made that decision. But I still believe in the paper, and I still feel lucky that there are these 
foreign correspondent jobs where at 45 years old, I can have a whole new life. Which, you, sorry, go ahead. No, which just has like a certain, it, it, it appeals to my sense of adventure. And do you think you could ever come back and take a desk over by Times Square and no, run the foreign no desk comment. or no comment. reintegrate into American I think, society? I, I, think, I think it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I mean, like we have some friends that have come back from Kenya and live in New York, and some of them are having a great time. And there's wonderful things about being in a place like this. But it's it's hard, you know. Just one last like story. I get um, I get harassed now when I come into the United States. So I'm on some watch list, and I get taken out of line at immigration at JFK and sent to secondary, and extensively interrogated every time I come back uh, to New York because of the places I've been or the contacts I've made. And I'm, I'm a known quantity. You can Google me. You can establish who I am. I don't have any terrorist connections. I'm a journalist. But that like is lost on the TSA system. And so I have like this, the minute I land, I'm kind of treated as an outsider. And that kind of sucks, you know? I'm an American. I have an American passport. I believe in America. I care about America, even if I choose to live overseas. So I, I've now been away long enough that I kind of don't belong anywhere. And that's hard. Like in Kenya, I'm an outsider. I'm a privileged, you know, Mzungu, white guy. I'm not a, you know, an African. My life does not resemble most people's lives in sub-Saharan Africa. And then I come back here and I'm kind of like off balance. So... I think you can get through that, but I, I do think it will be hard to ever just kind of go forward without these experiences affecting the rest of my life. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to go on the podcast. My pleasure. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Jeffrey Gettleman for coming in this week. Thanks to our editor this week, Mickey Capper, and our intern, Courtney Harrell. As always, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our sponsors, MailChimp, V by Viacom, 2U, and Kindle. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.